of the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry. And I'd like to set that up with a, an analogy here. Do you guys, when you, uh, you have smartphones, when you ever update a phone, does it ever say you have to like update or it's not going to work correctly? So we have all these little devices around our house, and I'm the guy who updates them. And my wife's over there smirking. She didn't know I was going to say this, but she hates it when I update her phone or any of her devices. Not hate like she's mad, but she has the experience of an update happening and then something not working the way it used to. And uh, she doesn't like that. Uh, so my question for you, uh, as you, as you uh, ponder this, is what is the nature of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of believers prior to the new covenant? And I see someone put the slide up there already to uh, prime the pump here. So thank you for that. Um, compare an old rotary phone from 1919 to the latest iPhone. Or... Compare a legal pad to a MacBook Pro or a horse and buggy to a Ford F-150 with 290 to 400 horsepower. And you're thinking, but no gas. <laughs> Forget that part. But, uh, uh, and we could add the you know, change from communicating by snail mail to communicating by Zoom or using a broadband internet connection. So my point here is that the nature of change can be relatively small or it can be drastic, like, like these examples here. So my question for you is, is the, old, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant, is that, how, how would you compare and contrast that to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant? Is it a, a minor change, like updating your software from version 14.3 to 14.4? Or is it more like going from a legal pad to a MacBook Pro or from a rotary phone to an iPhone? Is it drastic or is it just a little update? You think about that? What's the difference? Well, I think it's not a minor change. I think it's a really big deal that and the reason that this is important for us is it helps us be more grateful and appreciate what we have at this point in the history of, of salvation. So you might say, well, how's it, how's it different? How's the Holy, Spirit, Holy Spirit's ministry now different from before Pentecost? And my short answer is, it's way better. So let me start by showing you a few passages, uh, uh, give you some highlights here. So next slide here, John 14. So before Jesus died as the penal substitute for his people, he promised this. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for, here it is, he dwells with you and will be in you. So whatever that means, Prior to the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, he wasn't in you, like he, he was with you. So there could be some kind of indwelling, but not this kind of indwelling where he's in you. Somehow the in you part is better than the just with you part. Okay? And John 16, 7. Uh, Very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. Now, do you, do you really believe what he says there? 
Like, do some of you think, uh, I don't know, if I could have Jesus in the flesh, I think I'd take that. He's saying it's, it's better that I go away so you can have the Holy Spirit. All right, here's another passage. This is Luke 24, 49. So after Jesus rose from the dead, before he ascended to the Father, he said this to his disciples. Behold, I'm sending you the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Power from on high. What, what is that? Well, Luke and Acts are two volumes, volume one and volume two. So this, this passage is right at the end of volume one. Here's what the beginning of volume two says. Acts one, while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them, the apostles, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Remember that phrase? He said, you heard from me, the promise which he said you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now that's significant. And I think that's supporting what these passages I've just read are supporting that the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry is a big deal. It's not a minor update. It's a major one. So our text is Acts 2, 1 to 13. You've turned to Acts chapter 2. And Acts 2, 1 to 13 is the story of the beginning of the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry. So I'd like to preach to you from Acts 2, 1 through 13 on this subject, the beginning of the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry. And we'll approach this passage by asking eight questions. And I'll move, I'll move quickly, don't worry. Um, eight questions. This kind of help us understand what the passage is saying. So let's start with this first question. When did the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry begin? The answer is, on the day of Pentecost, at about 9 o'clock a.m. And you're thinking, what? Let's, so let's just read through the passage once, and then I will show you where that's coming from. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak to each other in tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. So that's our passage. If you look down to verse 15, it says, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. That's where I got the nine o'clock a.m. 
That's, that's about what that's referring to. That's, as we keep time, the third hour of the day is about 9 o'clock a.m. So the first words of our passage mention the particular day, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived. And that word Pentecost means 50th part or 50th day. And it began the festival of weeks, which you can read about in Deuteronomy 16, or the festival of harvest, Exodus 23. So this began 50 days after Passover among the Jews. So Jewish pilgrims from all over the world would come to, I say all over the world, I mean the Roman Empire really, they would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and then Pentecost 50 days later. Now the symbolism is beautiful. So on the day of Pentecost, that's the Feast of Harvest, Acts 2.41 says that God would harvest about 3,000 souls. So there's harvesting going on on the festival of harvesting. And, and note also, the first words of our passage highlight this concept of fulfillment. Uh, it's not really transparent in most English translations. So like the ESV says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. And that word arrived translates a word that means fulfilled. So Luke uses that same word in Luke 9.51 when he says, when the days drew near, that's it, drew near, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Luke is, I think, signaling that what happens in Acts 2 is fulfilling God's plan. And this supports what I think is the theological message of the book of Acts, which is that Jesus the Messiah continues to fulfill God's plan by expanding the early church in the face of opposition through the Holy Spirit's power. It's about fulfilling God's plan. So that's the first question. When did this begin? Second question is, to whom? And the answer is, about 120 believers. To whom did the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry begin? Acts 2.1 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So who does that refer to? They were all together. Who are these people? Well, look back to Acts chapter 1, verse 15. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So the group includes there both men and women because Peter says in Acts 2, 17 and 18, that God has poured out his spirit on both men and women. So I think it's reasonable to conclude that this group of 120 people is a group of men and women who are believers in Jesus. That's our second question. Third, where? Where did the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry begin? And the answer is in Jerusalem. If you look back in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, you see, uh, while staying with them, the apostles, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father from Jerusalem. And then after he ascends to heaven, Acts 1.12 says that the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So the apostles and the other believers are waiting. They're waiting in the verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, says the upper room of a home in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not sure if there's fill in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. The text in chapter 2 verse 1 just says they were all together in one place. It could be the upper room. Um, chapter 2 verse 2 says they were in a house. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure if it's the same house. 
But we do know this. It took place in Jerusalem. Because verse 5 says they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews. And he said, why are you going on and on about Jerusalem? This is important because the rest of the book of Acts unpacks, I think, Acts 1.8, the programmatic statement that you'll receive power when you receive the Holy Spirit and, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And it just kind of goes out from there. So the, the, the fact that the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry begins in Jerusalem is right there in Acts 1.8. And this is confirming that. Here's the fourth question. How did the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry begin? And I'll spend a little bit more time here. So there was a dramatic outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I count at least six dramatic actions in verses 2, 3, and 4. So let's, let's look at those. So first, uh, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Some translations say a violent rushing wind. So just imagine the sound of a violent rushing wind. It's kind of scary. Um, now, suddenly signals, that word suddenly signals that God, the Holy Spirit, freely and sovereignly does whatever he wants, when he wants. That's the first thing to observe here. Second, the, the word wind, uh, it's not the word you would expect in the, in the Greek language here. So the Hebrew word ruach, the, the Greek word pneuma, often can mean spirit with a capital S, spirit with a lowercase s, wind or breath, and only context lets you know which one it is. This is not that word. So this is a word that doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit. It refers to the wind. Uh, this, this word means wind only, or, or maybe breath sometimes. And as this passage mentions wind, and then also uses that word pneuma for spirit, uh, it also, it, in addition to wind and spirit, it has people speaking. It's invoking, I think, the image that God is creating something new. So you've got wind, spirit, breath, speaking. Does that remind you of maybe the first part of the Bible, like the opening words? Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, earth was formless and void. The spirit's hovering in the face of the waters, and God says, let there be light. This is creation language. And, and you see it again in passages like Ezekiel 37. Uh, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. It's creation language. And that's going on right here. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. I think it's hinting God's about to begin a new creation. All right, so that's that's uh, first observation. Of second, uh, it uh, the sound filled the entire house where they were sitting. It's loud, violent rushing wind. Third, divided tongues as a fire appeared to them. So after the believers heard the sound, then they saw divided tongues as a fire. If I had to draw this, I I don't know what I'd draw. I don't know what this means exactly. Uh, I envision the shape of tongues, but composed of something that looks like fire. I'm hoping that in the new heavens and new earth, we'll have access to high-definition videos to watch this from multiple angles, because i got questions. Um, but sometimes uh, the Bible uh, has fire symbolizing that the holy and pure God is present. Like when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, or when... The Lord went before his people by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and a pillar uh, 
in a pillar of fire by night to give them light. So I think it's, it's symbolizing that here. God's here. And then, so that's a, a third uh, uh, dramatic action here. Here's a fourth. Divided tongues as a fire rested on each one of them. And a fifth action is they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit strongly influenced them and enabled them to, to accomplish a particular task. And this instance, that's proclaiming what verse 11 says is the mighty works of God in other languages. Miracle. And then that uh, sixth action is they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What is this talking about? Well, I listened to your ser- to Pastor Matt's sermon from last week because it's related to this on 1 Corinthians 14. So this is a nice, nice dovetailing here. So when, it's, when uh, Luke says they began to speak in other tongues, you could translate that word tongues as languages. So the, the Greek word translated tongues in verse 4 I'm going to say the Greek word. Don't let me do this. Don't, don't normally do this, but you've heard this, I think. Glossa. That's where you get the term glossolalia. I'll come back to that. Okay, glossa. That's the same word translated tongues in verse 3, the tongues of fire. And that word can refer to the, the organ in your mouth. That the tongue. That's a tongue. Or the language I'm speaking right now, English. That's a tongue. Same Greek word can refer to both. So context has to tell you, which one is it? Is it the physical organ of speech in your mouth, or is it the spoken language? And here, they began to speak in other tongues. It's not talking about the organ in your mouth. It's talking about physical, uh, excuse me, it's talking about actual languages, unlearned spoken languages. And we know this because verses 6 and 8 and 11 tell us this, explain it. I think, I think it'd be less confusing to translate the word as languages instead of tongues in verses 4 and 11. And then translate the Greek word in verses 6 and 8, uh, dialectos, as dialect. Because that's what it's talking about. Dialects versus languages. So the, the miracle here is speaking another language that you had not previously learned. That's the miracle. It's not hearing in your own tongue. Like, like if I'm speaking in English and you're hearing it in German. It's not, not, it's not a miracle of hearing. It's a miracle of speaking here. And this dramatic event is what later in Acts 2, uh, Luke calls, or Peter calls, it, uh, through Luke's authoring, calls the outpouring of the Spirit. So if you look down to verses 16 to 18, see Peter proclaiming, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. In those days I will pour out my Spirit. Uh, verse 33, Peter's preaching about Christ. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that's Christ, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Christ is exalted to God's right hand, received the promise of the Holy Spirit, poured out the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening right here in Acts 2. And you might be wondering, how, how does this speaking in tongues here compared to speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Now this isn't a sermon on 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, uh, but I'll share my brief take on that. What's on the screen here is something I've, I've written elsewhere. Tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 does not always mean exactly the same thing as in Acts. Tongues in Acts 2 
probably refers to that funny looking word xenoglossia means speaking in a human language the speaker does not know. Speaking in a human language. So it'd be like if I were to speak Chinese fluently, that'd be a miracle because I, I can't do that. <laughs> My mom can. Um, and then tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 probably refers to glossolalia. That's speaking in verbal patterns that humans can't identify with any human language. But it's still an actual language. It's just not a normal spoken human language. And the reason I say this is Paul says in chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14.2, one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one, no man, understands him. And uh, Don Carson insightfully observes, quote, tongues in Acts occur only in groups, are not said to recur, are public, and may serve various purposes of attestation. That means attesting to the, so in this case, attesting that Jesus is alive and rose from the dead and is exalted. It's attesting to that. Tongues in 1 Corinthians fall to the individual, may be used in private, must be translated if in public, and serve no purpose of attestation. So they're, I think they're different. And probably not next week, he'll probably preach on a different passage in 1 Corinthians 14, but maybe the week after that he can correct what I just said if he needs to. But that's, that's my take. <laughs> he agrees. Okay, good. All right. So that's uh, question four is how. Here's question five. With what result? With what result did the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry begin? The believers proclaimed the mighty works of God to a crowd of Jews from other nations in their native languages. This is amazing. So this is verses 5 to 13. Let's just read it again. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Let's pause there. So some scholars estimate that about one million Jewish pilgrims visited Jerusalem for Passover and Pentecost. So other families had moved uh, to Jerusalem to live permanently. Some were, were temporary. Okay, verse 6. At this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. That is, that word language there is dialect. So this, the first language for most of these folks was not Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek. They live in somewhere else far away, and they, they, have, a, they have their own native language, and they don't expect someone from Galilee to speak it. All right? And verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? So you could translate that, in our own language in which we were born, our own native language. And these two questions here are rhetorical. Are, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Yeah, they are. Uh, aren't we hearing in our own native language? Yes, we are. Uh, and the point is, it's amazing and astonishing. It's a miracle. A miracle. Now that word miracle, uh, I think people misuse that word a lot. Uh, I'm, I tend to be precise with my words. And here's what I think the word miracle means. It's, so, so like when you have a baby, that's great. I like babies. That's not a miracle. Okay, I just made a bunch of enemies. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, here's what a miracle is. An event brought about by the power of God 
that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. It's unusual. And that's what this is. This is a miracle. Now, here's a map from the ESV Study Bible that corresponds to verses 9 to 11. It's probably not big enough for all you to see, but uh, if I had, was able to mark it up, I could show you where all these elements in verses 9 to 11, all these places, they're on this map. So Parthians and Medes, that's in the top right of the map, and Elamites, the bottom, bottom right, and residents of Mesopotamia, again, bottom right, and Cappadocia, right in the middle, and Pontus, and Asia, that's the Roman province of Asia, and Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, okay, that's south, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, again, right by Egypt there, the western part of Libya, and visitors from Rome, so Rome's the top left, both Jews and proselytes, that's so non-Jews who converted to Judaism come, and Cretans, that's that island right in the middle, the Mediterranean there, and Arabians, that's just to the bottom right of where Jerusalem is. All these people, we hear them, they say that we hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. So when Christ pours out his spirit on his people, they're intoxicated with God's greatness and that overflows into praising God. And verse, verses 12 and 13 say, and they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. They're drunk, they're drunk. So that's, that's the result of this dramatic outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's it. And, and verse 6 says this is bewildering. Verses 7 and 12 say it's amazing. Verse 7 says it's astonishing. Verse 12 says it's perplexing. I mean, what, what exactly happened? So you have the apostles and other believers proclaiming the mighty works of God to a crowd of Jews from other nations in their native languages. And when other Jews in Jerusalem heard the sound of the Spirit's outpouring, they gathered to see what's going on, what is this? And they're just blown away because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, his own native language. They're amazed and perplexed. What does this mean? They're mocking. They think they're drunk. Peter tells the crowd in verse 15, they're not drunk. These people are not drunk. And then he goes on to answer what this means in the the rest of chapter 2. That's his sermon, verses 14 to 36. So the first five questions that we've asked so far have explicit answers in our text. The Bible, the rest of the Bible, informs us how we answer the next three questions, the final three questions we're going to ask. So question number six, why is this story so important? And I'd summarize it by saying it's a turning point in the Bible's storyline. This this story is recounting a key transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It's a turning point. A story of the Bible has been building up to this point. Uh, it's, it's part of a series of events that transition from the Old Covenant to the New. Uh, in other words, this story is helping us understand how we got from there to where we are now, from there to here. Now, this slide here is by my friend Jason DeRoshi. He's an Old Testament scholar. So you have the, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and then there's an overlap. And we are in the overlap right now. So the, the, the new age is already here, but not yet fully here. That will happen when Jesus comes back. So we're in the overlap of the ages. And, and what happens on Pentecost is a really big deal. That's what, what begins us combined with the cross. So here are four reasons that this event in Acts 2 is so significant, such a remarkable turning point. First, 
This event reverses what happened at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Remember that story? So at the Tower of Babel, the rebellious people say, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And then the Lord responds, uh, well, Genesis 11 says, come, let us go down. It's kind of a way of, of, of mocking them. I have to come down to see what you're building that's so high. Let us, let us come down there and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now this contrasts the Babel story, the Tower of Babel, with this story in Acts. So they're not going to understand each other's speech. And then Acts 2.6 says they're bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So they're confused in both cases, but the nature of the confusion is strikingly different. At the Tower of Babel, the people are confused because they can't understand one another's language. At Pentecost, they're bewildered because they can. There's a reversal here. So at, at Babel, that event divided people into different nations and languages. And at Pentecost, it unites God's people from different nations and languages. At Babel, it lists these nations in Genesis 10 that foreshadows a list of 15 groups scattered in Acts chapter 2. And then you've got the spread of the gospel in Acts 2, fulfilling God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12:3, and you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. It's beautiful, beautiful. And one more thing here. Uh, Old Testament scholar Jason DeRoshi recently reminded me that the Old Testament prophet Zephaniah foresaw that God would reverse Babel. He just wrote a, a long, big commentary on Zephaniah. So Zephaniah 3 says this, Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. From the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Cush is referring to Egypt. That's one of the, the nations mentioned. And in his forthcoming commentary on Zephaniah, uh, Jason Jerochi highlights six connections between the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 and this prophecy in Zephaniah 3 and Pentecost in Acts 2. I won't go through them all with you now. But it's, it's a beautiful pattern that God has designed. And it culminates in Revelation 7 when, when John sees this great multitude that no one can number from every nation and tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's where it's going. That's how it culminates. Oh, it mentions palm branches. It's Palm Sunday. I want to go on a rabbit trail. i got to stay focused. Okay. Um, so why is the story so important? Number two, uh, this event marks the birthday of the church. So theologians often debate when did the church begin? Did it begin with Adam and Eve? Did it begin with Abraham? Did it begin with the Israelites? Did it begin at Pentecost? You've heard this debate. Uh, when did the church begin? So I have dear friends who are all over the spectrum on this question, and we don't have to answer it the same to have close, dear friendship and, and, and fellowship in Christ. My personal view 
is that I think that the church began officially on the day of Pentecost. However, I also believe that the church does not now exclude the people of God prior to Pentecost. So you're like, huh, how's this work? Um, I think that the church now includes the one people of God, all of them, including those who existed before Pentecost. So it's, I don't want to be anachronistic where I refer to the, like the church in the wilderness, like when I'm reading the Old Testament. But now, after Pentecost, I think when you refer to the church, it refers to all of God's people. Are you with me? Okay, so like Ephesians 5 says that Christ died for the church. I don't think that means he died just for the people from Pentecost to, to the end. I think he died for his people. Um, so at this, at this point in the history of salvation, the church refers to all of God's people. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The, the one people of God is the bride of Christ. And what I'm trying to do is wrestle with what's called continuity. There's, there's continuity throughout the Bible and discontinuity and noticing that there's the nature of the people of God is significantly different starting at Pentecost. I don't want to act like it's completely the same, but I don't want to so emphasize the differences that I don't also see the, the unity. If I just thoroughly confuse you, talk to your pastors afterwards. They'll, they'll, okay. Um, number, number three. Uh, this event marks when the nature of the people of God changes from being a mix of rebels and, and remnant to being all regenerate. Okay, he said that's good. That's encouraging to me because that means he agreed with kind of what I just said. So think of the Old Testament people of Israel. You refer to them all as people of God, but they're not all going to be with the Lord forever. Some of them are hardened rebels. Some of them, God has changed their hearts and they're part of the remnant, but they're all the people of Israel. That's different than the people of God now. The people of God now is the church and it's exclusively, only, entirely regenerate people. So in other words, the church today, the, the, the actual genuine church does not include non-believers. I don't mean like people who might attend a church service. Certainly that can, often does include unbelievers. But the actual church is regenerate. That's why uh, churches like this one try so hard to have a membership that's meaningful Meaning, we see that you claim to be a Christ follower, and we see evidence of that, and we affirm that. Welcome in. And then if we, it comes a time where we can no longer affirm that, we can no longer say you're part of this church, because we think that membership is meaningful. The church consists of regenerate people, people whom, whose God's spirit has, has given new life to. And this is fulfilling, I think, a prophecy in Ezekiel 36, when God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's true of all Christians. It's beautiful. Uh, so so this, this, this uh, event at Pentecost marks when that happens. Fourth, this event marks when the mission of the people of God fundamentally changes from being come and see to go and tell. In other words, when you read the Old Testament, do you see a big focus on missions? Like you see a radical movement of Israelites you know, raising support among 
the, the Jews in Jerusalem and, and going to the ends of the earth to spread the truths about God. Is that an emphasis in the Old Testament? They're like, oh, well, there's Jonah. Not your best example. Um, right? It's, there, there's not a lot of that. Uh, it doesn't mean God doesn't care about the nations. He does. But it's culminating in this new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit where they come and see, come to Jerusalem and become a, uh, an Israelite. Now it's, you don't have to go to a place. We don't, we don't make pilgrimages to Jerusalem because that's what our religion demands of us. We might go because we're interested and it helps us understand the Bible better. That's great. But we don't need to. I'm guessing most of you haven't been to Jerusalem. And that's okay. You should feel no guilt about that. Uh, our, the nature of Christianity is such that you can be anywhere all over the world, and this can flourish. It's, it's no longer come to Jerusalem and see. It's go and tell and spread. And, and that, that begins in, in Acts chapter 2. So that's why this story is so important. That was question number six. Question number seven, does Pentecostalism rightly interpret this event on Pentecost? And my short answer is no. Um, so when you hear the word Pentecost, you might think of Pentecostalism. So let me just distinguish. Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, is what we've been looking at in Acts 2. Pentecostalism is something very different from that. Pentecostalism, well, I'm going to summarize it by something I, I, I wrote earlier. Uh, according to most church historians, it began on December 31st, 1900. So relatively recent. Uh, a, a fellow named Charles Parham a Bible teacher at Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas, laid his hands on Miss Agnes Osman that day, and she soon began speaking in tongues. And when, within days, Parham and many other students also experienced what they believed was the initial evidence of spirit baptism. So Pentecostalism, the mainstream version here, uh, maintains that believers should experience spirit baptism after conversion. So after they've repented and believed in Jesus, Sometime after that, they experience spirit baptism. And then they initially demonstrate that by speaking in tongues. So Pentecostals are divided regarding whether spirit baptism happens at a sanctification crisis or at a later time after that. So if you're following with me here, uh, follow me. Uh, some call spirit baptism the second blessing and some call it the third blessing. So if it's a third blessing, blessing one is the crisis of conversion, you become a Christian, become saved. And then crisis number two is for sanctification, for holiness. And then crisis number three is spirit baptism for power, for service. And if I've confused you, maybe this chart will help clarify things. So the cross on the left represents when you become a Christian. <laughs> the cross represents conversion. And then you see that box says crisis, spirit baptism. That's showing that later in time you experience a second crisis of some sort where it's like going from Clark Kent to Superman. Uh, it's major change. Uh, go from this pattern of carnality, defeated Christian life, to a victorious Christian life. Um, and the evidence initially for this change is speaking in tongues. And then on the right-hand side, those arrows going up, down, up, down, up, down to show that you can lose this and get it back, lose it, get it back over and over again. Now, there, there are a bunch of different variations of this. One, one is called Keswick theology. Uh, one is by uh, Lewis Berry Chafer called Chaferian theology. Um, so I won't confuse you with all the other 
things, but I'm trying to explain Pentecostalism here. Let me compare it to what I think is what the New Testament teaches. Uh, it's, some call it the reform view of progressive sanctification. So I believe that the Bible teaches that when you become a Christian, God gives you new life, he regenerates you, gives you the gifts of faith and repentance, and at that moment, you're spirit baptized. That spirit baptism, it begins at the moment of conversion, and that the result of the Lord's work in your life is a gradual maturing. Now, everyone's life's going to be different. Some are going to take larger steps of growth at certain times than others. Some will have periods where they're disarming the Lord, but overall, the, the, the trend is growth, uh, that, that God works in his people. He works the willing and the doing. Uh, so Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation because God works it in you. So God is the one enabling this, this to, to continue. So you remember this from a sermon several weeks ago from Pastor Matt on 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, I think, teaches that all Christians are spirit baptized, that this is true of all of you. He's, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, you've all been baptized by the Spirit. I think that's why the, the New Testament never exhorts Christians to be spirit baptized, because you already are. Um, now, spirit filling, that's a little different. There, we, we, we still can be influenced to greater and greater degrees by the Spirit, obviously. Uh, but I don't think we should call a, a, an experience subsequent to conversion spirit baptism. Now, there are some who hold the basic theological framework that we do who would differ, but there are very few of them. One is a fellow named Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, but I don't know many others uh, than that who, who would take that view. Now, you might be saying... Why are you talking about this? Um, well, one, because Pentecostal is pretty common, at least in America, uh, and, and you might have questions about that. Another is that I believe uh, it's important to get this right because bad theology dishonors God and hurts people. I'm, I'm paraphrasing J.I. Packer there. Bad theology hurts people. So this applies, I think, to a view of the Christian life that separates chronologically when a, when a person becomes a Christian and when progressive sanctification, transformation happens, when that, when that begins. And I think that those approaches that separate conversion from transformation, that they're well-intended, but they are quick-fix approaches to Christian living that will not actually help you with your struggle against sin. They're not going to result in a higher life or a deeper life or a victorious life or a more abundant life or anything other than a misguided, frustrated, and disillusioned life. Do you want to know what I really think about those views? <laughs> okay, so I, I share these because I, I, I believe this deeply and I think the truth matters here. Uh, so that was question number seven. And if you're a Pentecostal, I love you. We're friends. Uh, we can, and I hope you're, you're hearing my heart. It's, I just love the truth, and I, and I, I want the truth of the, of the Scripture to prevail while loving people who may see it differently. All right? I'm leaving a lot of cleanup work for the pastors today. So, <laughs> All right, question number eight. Uh, how should we respond to this story in Pentecost? Well, I'll summarize it this way. Praise God and continue to fulfill the mission by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
a lot of times you get to the end of a sermon and, and you get to the so what question and you're looking for a list. Like, okay, what do I do? What, what do I do going out of here? And that's not bad. It, we should always want to respond to scripture, apply it to our lives, and often that's uh, very practical. Here's how I change what I do. But sometimes when you come to a passage, the response is not so much, what do I do, but behold your God. There could be a passage like that. Uh, marvel, worship. Uh, this passage, I think, is just a, a, a very encouraging passage. It's a, here's how we got from there to here. Wow, be encouraged. Uh, praise the Lord for that. And, and remember where you are in the story and do your part. Okay, so I think, I think that's the way to respond here. Uh, it's look what God has done. Praise God for sending his Holy Spirit and empowering his people to spread the gospel to the end of the earth, even to Greenville, South Carolina. I mean, imagine what was going on on this physical location 2,000 years ago. And look at it now. The, we are the ends of the earth. So a lot of people, when they read Acts 1.8, uh, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and the ends of the earth. They think, all right, this is our strategy for you know, our church in Greenville. We're, we're like Jerusalem, and then Greenville County and South Carolina is like all Judea, and, you know, and then think nationally, and then go out there. And that's, that's good for strategizing, but that's not what Acts 1 8 is talking about. You are the end of the earth. You're not Jerusalem, okay? It's like, it happened. The gospel has gone to the end of the earth. Now, it can go to more ends of the earth. It can keep going, and we should be involved in that. But it's also a, a very profoundly encouraging truth. Look what's happened. It's happened. Praise the Lord for that. Locate yourself in the story. Remember, it's still unfolding. Christ has commissioned his church to make disciples at home and abroad, and the Spirit empowers us to do that. Remember what Jesus said at the end of End of Luke, beginning of Acts. I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Then, later, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So, let's continue to fulfill the mission to make disciples of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's continue the story. And that starts with how you proclaim and live out the gospel in your home, it broadens out to how you do that in your wider family, in your neighborhood, your community, your workplace, social media, all your spheres of influence. And, and you say, well, should I go? Maybe. But if God's not calling you to go physically, he is calling you to support those who are. Third John says, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry is an empowering presence that enables us to love God and our neighbor, to put sin to death, to serve others with gladness, to persevere in faith and good works, to proclaim and live out the gospel in every sphere of life. It's awesome. Praise God for the Holy Spirit's empowering presence. So that's the story of the beginning of the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry. And when we consider that story, our main response, I think, should be, wow, God is amazing. He's amazing. What a plan. 
And he's, a, he's he is sovereignly accomplishing that plan through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we get to be part of it. We're in the story. We are the end of the earth, and we get to continue to fulfill this glorious mission by making disciples of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us at the end of the earth. We're so grateful. Thank you for clothing your new covenant people with power from on high, with the power of the Holy Spirit to be your witnesses. We're so grateful for the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for pouring out the Spirit on your people. Amen. Amen.